You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Well, as I mentioned, I'm Nick. If we haven't had a chance to meet, if uh, we've never met before, I'd love to, love to get to know you. I'm still uh, meeting a lot of you that came around last year as I was absent for a lot of the year, but... I'm on staff with Alani Life, and this morning I get the chance to share with you about the, the final wrap-up for Second Look series. I'm going to talk to you about the church, taking a second look at the church. But before we do that, I want to begin with a story, if that's all right. Picture it in your mind. It was mid-afternoon, January 24th, 1975, a typical winter day in Cologne, Germany, when Keith Jarrett arrived. The renowned jazz pianist had just completed the long drive from Zurich, Switzerland, where he had performed the night before. Tiredness from travel and aching back and the pressure to perform plagued the artist. He was to play the first ever jazz concert In the Cologne Opera House, it was scheduled for 11.30 p.m. that evening. This concert had been organized by an ambitious 17-year-old girl beginning her career as a concert promoter in Germany. Now, as Jarrett sat at the piano, he immediately noticed things were not right. This was a baby grand piano, an instrument too small and unfit for this level of performance and this performer. But beyond that, he quickly noticed it was badly broken and out of tune. Now, despite several hours of work crunched by the time of the pressing show and opera later that day, the instrument remained tinny, thin in the upper registers, and weak in the bass registers, and the pedals were broken and didn't even work. He refused to play. Jared would not go on. This young 17-year-old girl pleaded with him to go on. She reminded him of the sold-out show, of her budding career that would be smashed. She reminded him of the gravity of being the first jazz show in this famed opera house. Now, eventually, Jarrett agreed. Maybe swayed by her, uh, her budding career, maybe swayed by this sweet young girl. one condition, that the, recorded, the show would be recorded as planned so that he would have documented proof of what a musical catastrophe sounded like. He set himself up for failure. 11.30 p.m. arrives. Jarrett takes the stage. He sits at the piano, rests his hands on the keys, and begins to play this. Not that. Thank you. 
beautiful, isn't it? I love it. Uh, this show, <laughs> the resulting recording uh, that came about that, that evening, it became hugely popular. In fact, to this day, over 40 years later, it still remains the best-selling solo piano performance of all time. A simple, broken piano forced the artist into new levels of genius, of new levels of improvisation, of innovation and exploration. He had to try things he had never thought of before. He had to play things no one had ever heard before. What he anticipated being a disaster, a musical catastrophe, was his greatest composition. If he hadn't stopped and taken a second look at the piano and decided to play, the world would lack this piece of art, this beauty. Taking a second look, that's what we've been doing. That's what we want to do this morning. Over these past four weeks, we've taken a second look at the Bible, at rules and religion, sin and guilt. Last week, the Holy Spirit. And today, we're taking a second look at the church. Now, throughout this series, we've been talking that as Christians, we need to, be remem- we need to re- remember that we live in a post-Christian culture, a world where uh, Christian values aren't necessarily an assumption anymore. If you haven't felt this in your life, you will. If you haven't felt it on this campus, you will. Many people we meet, they're more likely to distrust Christianity, distrust the church, than to think of it as a place for answers, guidance, or community in their life. Now, in general, our society, it's okay with vague spirituality and language, and so it's okay if you're a spiritual person. But there's not much room for the God of the Bible, the one that speaks deeply into our society, into our culture, into our lives, and shapes us in the way we live. Maybe you felt it this way. As Christians, we can be pegged as the nice people, right? The ones not to swear around or to apologize if you do, don't drink in front of them or let them know that you drink. Um, Or maybe it's before a meal and someone feels obligated to pray and they're like, you're the godly one, why don't you do it? Or, or the flip side could be, could be harder, right? The, we can feel the hatred that gets cast at the misguided few in Christ's name who preach on the quad hateful messages. Or the hate mongers that, that are quick to tell who God hates rather than who he loves, as if God hated humanity. Or, or maybe even uh, those that have covered their racism with religion and politics. In the name of God. And we can get labeled with these people. We can be cast with these stereotypes. And, and when our peers interact with those things and, and we feel them, we wonder, do they know me? Do they know my church? Do they know my faith? What about my God? And so we want to invite them to take a second look. Now, our way forward often is through deep relationship. We invite them to take a second look as they get to know us and our faith, our church, and what we do. But it's not just those around us that need to take a second look. In fact, this morning, this morning, I want us to take a second look at the church. I want us to look at what the church was intended to be, where she is today, and how do we close that gap? 
Now to do that, we're going to look at a passage Paul wrote to the, uh, to the church in Ephesus, to the, the, the letter to the Ephesians. And in this chapter, he's talking about unity in the church. And as we do that, we're going to examine unity in the church today. Where are we at? What was it supposed to be? Where are we at? And we're going to consider how do we move forward? How do we get there? So if you have a Bible with you and you want to open, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. I also have the words up on the screen. You can follow along there. Now, here's, here's some background. As we read this, you're going to see Paul address Gentile Christians. Now, that's a, that's a term for non-Jewish believers, right? Probably many of, many of us fit in that category, non-Jewish Christians. Now, Paul's addressing them, and he's reminding them of who they were before Christ brought them into God's saving grace, before he brought them into his family. And he's urging them to live united with the Jewish believers around them. So let's read the passage. Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that you at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So there... So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Very Paul, right? A little wordy, hard, cumbersome, hard to follow. Feel disjointed. Where is he at right now? But you see it, right? Gentiles, of which a lot of us would be, unless or would be considered, unless we come from a Jewish background, right? Gentiles, we were we were without hope, no salvation, cut off from God and His family, no way to enter into His blessings. But now, in Christ Jesus. You have been brought new, brought into the fold, made new. You've been adopted into God's family. Both Jews and Gentiles are now God's people. There's no divide. This is monumental. The joining of these two people groups is unbelievable. Until this point in history, no one had seen a racial divide with more animosity disgust, and violence than this one. These two groups hated each other. Jews would refer to Gentiles as uncircumcised, as Paul showed us. 
It was a term they spit in disgust when they said. Or, or on the other side, Gentiles. If a Gentile were to marry a Jew, her family would hold a ceremonial funeral, signifying she was dead to them. These two groups hated one another. Absolutely could not stand each other. They saw each other as subhuman and treated each other as such. But now, in Christ, the two are made one. It's the greatest move of racial reconciliation in history. Jesus goes to the cross and brings all people together across all divides, Jew and Gentile. This is why unity is such a central message in the New Testament. I challenge you, read an epistle of the New Testament and not find unity. It's there. It's everywhere. When the church is formed, Jews and Gentiles are worshiping the same God together in the same building over a meal together. It's amazing. Unity. Now, if you remember nothing else this morning, I want you to remember this. I want you to grasp this. In Christ, all division has been broken down. We who are many are made one. In Christ, there's no divide. We're unified as one body. That's the church. That's what she's intended to be in all her beauty. Unified. Now, unity, though, to think about the church, that's not our experience. I mean, how is this unified? The chart of denominations. And that's a pretty conservative chart. Lumps a lot together. Some, conser- some estimates put over 33,000 denominations on the planet of Christianity. And that's a number that's really hard to quantify when you consider the non-denominational movement, which is mostly autonomous churches, their own denomination, sort of in, in, in its own right. But it's a number that continues to grow as people divide, congregations split. We divide over all kinds of things, don't we? We divide over theological minutiae, styles of worship, what time the service should be, how to perform communion, authority structures, what version of the Bible is the most inspired, race. Race. We divide over race. Sunday morning, one author puts, remains the most racially segregated time of the week in the United States. We can point our finger at racial divide in society, but we as the church have some work to do here, don't we? Still an area we need to work on. So the church, she's divided, right? I think we, I think we can all feel that. We all see that. But that's not a new thing. The New Testament is saturated with it. There's a call for unity constantly within churches. From the beginning, she's been plagued with this brokenness, with disunity, with divides. She's always been tinny and thin in the upper registers, weak in the base registers, and the pedals haven't worked. She's a broken piano. Now, it doesn't take long when I think about disunity in the church to realize you know, a lot of times we don't look that much different than the society around us. I imagine if you pulled up Facebook right now and strolled, which I hope you're not doing, <laughs> scroll through your feed, it won't take you long to find people being nasty to one another. 
people hurling insults at one another, someone offering very charged language on what their view of whether or not it's right for a black man to kneel at a football game in protest, or how that man should be allowed to protest. Our rhetoric is charged, it's nasty. You know, I think about it this way. I read an article this week. Two men, two Christian men, kneel on a football field in recent history and have been met with drastically different responses by society and sadly by the church. I'm not trying to be controversial. Stick with me here. I hope I'm not offending you. Some of you think of Tim Tebow kneeling in prayer on the football field and you cheer. Win for Christianity, a Christian man displaying his faith on the, on the national stage. Others of you are maybe the same. You see Colin Kaepernick on bended knee in protest of violence against black lives, and you sneer. How unpatriotic. And still others of you, and I've heard this in, on this campus in our midst, others of you say, neither were talented enough to make a difference. Who cares? which is incredibly sad to me that we live in a society where the truth of our message is measured by the talent of something unrelated. Now, regardless of your belief on these issues, that's not the point. The language and level of contempt you have for those that disagree with you reveals your heart. The contempt you show for your brother in Christ reveals the level of disunity and cancer in your soul. If we want those around us to take a second look at the church, we need to take a second look at ourselves and see the areas where we've abandoned respectful disagreement and adopted the divisive hatred of the culture around us. Where we've adopted language that dehumanizes those that oppose our view where we see them as uneducated, unpatriotic, or inconveniencing us. And I see this on both sides of every issue today. We treat each other as subhuman. Now, maybe we're doing pretty good. Maybe if we actually talked about these, we'd have a really good discourse here in Illini Life. Maybe our disagreements, they're civil, They're seasoned with grace and respect. And we can sharpen one another. And that's great. But we're not free of division, right? When I look around a line in life, I see division. And as I talked with a number of you this week, you see it too. We segregate by age, don't we? Not always, not completely, but we do. Right? The families gather in that small group, the working folks in that small group, the grads over there and the undergrads and all those. That's how we divide. Now, we work hard as a church to break down those divides. We provide events where we can all gather as one. We hold breaking bread times where we gather as one united community. We have weekend hangouts where we're trying to bridge those divides. But some of us, we choose to remain cloistered in our safe pocket of people that are similar to us, the same age, same stage of life. Or worse, we just skip the events altogether. 
I once uh, recently was sitting with an undergrad in their senior year. And they were telling me how they just couldn't handle being around freshmen. They couldn't relate to them. It seems their extra three years of life experience and age gap was just too much to overcome. And I listened sympathetically, but I couldn't help but calculate the 13-year age difference between he and I and how I considered him a dear friend and could relate to a lot of what was going on in his life. Or, or how about this one? Uh, the other day, I heard a grad student say an event we were doing, it was too undergrad. It was beneath them, and so they weren't going to attend. That was hard. It was hard because I thought the event was fun. And I was going to go, and I was excited about it. And I'm 34. <laughs> or, or a few years ago, a, a family told me, uh, they weren't going to do teardown because it didn't work for them as a family. And I thought, it doesn't work for any of us. It's hard. Make it work. It's a challenge. It's part of the life of the church. It's what we do. Now, hear me out. That The reality is there's truth in all these scenarios, right? It really is hard, legitimately hard, for a family to be fully invested in the life of the church. Not every event we do meets my interests, and they're certainly not targeted at my age demographic. It is hard to relate to those that are significantly younger to us. We have to work at it. The problem is, is when we let that be a divide rather than do the hard thing and overcome that divide, when we choose unity rather than staying within the echo chamber of those that sound, act, and look like us, the easy relationships that make us feel comfortable. When we choose the people that have our same interests, stage of life, and that agree with us so we don't have to be challenged, we settle for disunity. When we choose to only hang out with our small group because that's the easy thing to do, we settle for disunity. A line in life, if we want others around us to take a second look at the church, we need to take a second look at ourselves, at the areas where we've put up divides based on age and other superficial things. Now, here I'm choosing to be brutally honest with you. I think it's very interesting that I'm up here talking about unity in the church. And the reason I say that is I think it's pretty safe to say if you were to ask our three pastors among the leaders in this church who have been the people that have been more challenging, more divisive in our midst. My name would be on that list. Hard to admit. I'm not proud of that. But this is an area where I sin all over the place. Whenever relational conflict arises with me and someone else on the staff team, in leadership, or in the church, I quickly jump to vilifying that person. I make them the sum of their flaws. I see only their incompetencies. I start to question, why do we trust them to lead? Do I even want them around the church? And in my lowest moments, I have prayed that God would take people out of this church and take them somewhere else. Disgusting. The cancer of division that, that rests in my soul eats away at me and unity in the church. Left unchecked, 
our sin will create division. If I want people to take a second look at the church, I have to take a second look at my heart and my sin and ask for Christ's help, for his forgiveness. We need to take a second look at our sin and the way it creates division in our midst. And some of you that are more optimistic, you may have considered these divisions and think, well, why don't we just work at getting along all the time, right? At expense of everything, let's just focus on unity. Now, some have tried that. It's a path forward we've seen others in the church take. It's a path that attempts to avoid division by making everything all right as long as it's right for you. This side of faith, if you can even call it faith, it's the wimpy social club that stands for nothing, says nothing, and affects nothing around them. They're not the church, though they may call themselves the church, and on a first glance they might seem unified. The term here people often throw out is universalism or liberal theology. It's a great way way to welcome everyone, stand for nothing, attract no one, and make no lasting change on the world. Not to mention, not be the church. So we have two paths. We have a divided mess, a broken piano. We have a wimpy shell, a social club. It doesn't look like the church doesn't stand for anything. But Jesus, Jesus offers us a third way, a way forward. He calls us to be the church that's neither fractured down into theological subgroups or a church that just stands for a social gathering. He calls us to be one body focused on the truth of the gospel. People who are humble and gracious in our disagreements who are respectful towards one another, people who seek unity across age divides, people who seek to be careful with their sin, to ask for forgiveness and seek unity rather than division. How do we get there? How do we get to be those people? How do we live out the unity that Paul was calling us to in Ephesians chapter 2? I think first, first way forward is we need to see ourselves as one body with many parts. See the church globally as one body with many parts. We do that by, centering, by focusing on a center set of values rather than the bounded set. What do I mean by that? I mean we define the core of faith rather than the fringes of faith. We do what Paul did in his letter to the Corinthians when he, when he was walking among them. The center of faith is Christ Jesus and him crucified. Now, let's, let's think about that. Imagine with me the number of coffee shops in this area. By my count, there's nearly 40 places you can walk into and order a cup of coffee. If I tell you I'm going to a coffee shop, you have some assumptions about what that place is. First of all, they serve coffee. There might be lattes involved, pastries, Good lighting, comfortable seating, free Wi-Fi, not enough outlets to plug your laptop into. You know, we, we have an idea of what a coffee shop is and what it looks like. We know what to expect. But there are differences in these places, right? 
Not all 40 of those are the same. Some of you in the room, you might prefer the free-spirited hipster havens of Coffee Copi or Cafe Copi or Paradiso, right? Some of you like the predictable cookie-cutter pattern of Starbucks or Espresso Royale. You know exactly what you're getting when you walk in the door, and they're everywhere, so you're never far away from one. Some of you, you like the, the lesser expensive options of Dunkin' or McDonald's. Regardless, you know what a coffee shop should feel like, look like, and serve. If they're not serving coffee, they're not a coffee shop, right? The same is true with Christianity, with the church. If they're a Christian church, we expect them to be preaching Christ and him crucified. It's the core of faith. It's the center of our faith. If they're not, they're not a church. So that's the place where we can begin to form unity, where we can begin to work together. There's a great example of this. Many of you experienced all campus worship on this campus once a semester. It's a, it's a time where all of us Christian groups on campus say, Christ is where we overlap. We can worship one night together, our Lord. Rather than focusing on the ways we're different, we can set those aside and focus on the center. That's one way forward. We can focus on unity, what we have in common. Another way forward for us towards unity is we can develop a bias for the kingdom of God that is greater than our political and social allegiances. We can seek to embrace one another as brother and sister in Christ rather than draw lines between Cubs and Cardinals fans, Republicans or Democrats, Patriot or Black Lives Matter supporter. We embrace disagreement with respect and civility rather than insults and anger. We choose not to treat each other as the sum of our failings. I love that. We choose not to treat each other as the sum of our failings as uneducated villains. We're careful in our speech and how we disagree. We don't shame those we disagree with. We, we don't treat them as subhuman. Instead, we see them as beautiful creations, created in God's image. We choose to respectfully disagree. Another way forward is, is we choose to resist the urge to worship at the altar of our theological framework. Instead, we kneel at the foot of the cross, where our worship is rightly placed. We choose not to let theology become an idol in our lives, a thing that divides us. Now, theology is incredibly important, and if you know me at all, you know I love it, and I will talk to you all day long uh, on any topic you want. But the problem is, is when theology becomes a measuring stick and a dividing line for who's a heretic and who's not in minutia, it misses the point. I mean, think about it. If Jesus gave his life to unite Jews and Gentiles, what right do we have by creating division over what type of bread you use in communion? And churches divide over that. Lastly, a way forward I offer you is, is to embrace a posture of humility. We acknowledge that I might be wrong. I'm a biased human. I'm imperfect at best. 
I'm a sinner in need of grace. The only thing I can stand firmly on is Christ and him crucified. And so we embrace humility to seek out unity in the church. So Alani Life, if we want others to take a second look at the church, I think we need to take a second look at ourselves. The church, she might be a broken piano, but it's the piano Christ has chosen to represent him on this earth, to be his body. If we take the time to take a second look and pursue unity, together we'll make beautiful music, a masterpiece. You pray with me?